Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. My guest today is an extraordinary woman. Her name is Milagros Phillips, who is a race literacy expert, author, and speaker. And she has been facilitating programs for over 35 years on race literacy, racial conditioning, and healing from racism in ways that profoundly inform us, transform us, and lead to inspired action. Her fourth and latest book, Cracking the Healer's Code, A Prescription for Healing Racism and Finding Wholeness, will walk you through the stages of healing, and it is an invitation to take your rightful place in the human family, to create a vision of a more equitable future, and then to work towards that vision that is so needed for the world. She has facilitated thousands of people in healing this trauma associated with the disease, really, of separation. And I am so thrilled and honored to have her on today. Milagros Phillips, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad I found you or you found me. (laughs) I am so glad that we did find you, Diane. I'm so excited to be here with you. And I can't wait till we have our conversation. (laughs) Oh, this is, there is so much to unpack. And your book, your latest book is just a treasure. It is a treasure that I have not finished completing, as I mentioned before we got on the podcast here. It is so rich with information, with teachings, with um, a depth of history and a depth of really like modules of healing, which is applicable, not just to racism, but to humanity at large. And my God, are we at a place right now where we need to heal on so many levels. So thank you for this book and thank you for sending it my way. And um, let's just jump right in the pot, shall we? Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you, because you are uh, really an expert at this, not just because you're a woman of color by no means, um, but because of just the richness of information that you bring coupled with your experience, your direct experience. And my question to start off is really as you help others heal their internalized conditioning, particularly around race, you first had to do it with yourself. And knowing that your own inner journey um, around this is not some simple answer, and I know it's multi-layered as healing goes, to unravel itself or decalcify these, um, these, these traumas in our being, in our psyche. My question really is to start off, how did you heal being a woman of color? How did you heal around this subject of race, your experience of the history and the tyranny against people um, of color or just racism in general? And even the current climate that exists, 
How have you transformed? What did you do? That is a great question. And really what I tell people is, first of all, this is lifelong learning. I'm not there. I'm at a much better place than I used to be. Um, I've taken a lot of people with me, which which is really good over the years. A few thousand people have been through my two-day program. Um, but it was really a journey for me. And, 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 and I, and I want to say that it was one of those things where I didn't realize I was on a healing journey for the longest time. I was just having experiences. And so, um, so for instance, a lot of people ask me where I studied because I do a lot of work in corporations. So everybody wants to know where I studied and, and where I got my PhD, which I don't have. <laughs> but uh, I do have a PhD in this work, yes. you know, but, um, but they would ask me that. And, and um, my journey really started with something's wrong. I don't know what it is. What's wrong with me? Mm. Right? Like, why can't I get the job or make my life work or blah, blah, blah. Like just, you know, it, I started in that place of what's wrong with me. And, um, and so I did a lot of introspective work. I did a lot of uh, personal growth work. And in that process, and I always tell people this, at some point, I became healthy enough to realize that I really needed healing. Mm. And it wasn't from the stuff that I thought I needed to heal from. Yes. That there was something else going on that I, you know, like, it, 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 it was more of a feeling, right? And a sense, an essence. And I began to marry what I was learning in terms of healing, you know, becoming a Reiki master, um, um, magnified healing, Course in Miracles, blah, blah, you name it, right? So I started to marry all of that with my awareness, experiences, and knowledge of race, racism, and how that worked. And then that became the journey. So where a lot of people who talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations started that journey as being a diversity consultant. I used to be a diversity consultant, but I was always talking about race. You know, mm -hmm. So clearly there was something, there was a charge there. There was something mm -hmm. there. And, and so, so the journey for me really started when I was 13 years old, when Dr. King died. And, 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 I, and it was very clear, this is the work you're going to be doing. And I was not going to touch it. There was no way I was ever going to do race work. Um, it was toxic. It was hard. And, you know, somebody just got killed for doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm 13 and, and I, you know, so, so this is not anything like, this is not what I'm a, I'm a painter. I'm an artist. I'm a singer. I do, you know, sound therapy. I used to teach sound <laughs> therapy. You know what I mean? Like, like this is, and, and you're then, not going there. Right. Yes. And, and then there's this other calling, right. That kept calling me until I finally said yes. And so I'm still in process. Mm. There's a long answer to your short question. I'm still in process and probably will be for the rest of my life, but I have an awareness now 
that allows me to live with greater peace, greater joy, the fullness and the wholeness of being, understanding there is nothing wrong with me. It really is the rest of the world. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like the saying, it's not me, it's the rest of the, it really, for me, it's not me, it's the rest of the world. <laughs> and so, so that was part of the learning. And also realizing that not only is there nothing wrong with me, but I am enough. Mm-hmm. I am enough to realize that there are things that I never learned about my history and, and, you know, just general stuff, which, and that's the same for all of us. Right. And that there's something about not knowing ourselves that makes us believe we're not enough and living from that not enoughness doesn't allow us to do the work that we really came here to do and to connect at the level that we came to connect as a human family. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's been an, an appealing away of the layers and an uncovering of who am I really and why am I really here? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and really connecting to I really am here about love mm-hmm. and joy and happiness and places of anger and resentment and frustration or places I visit. But it's not who I am. And um they're just experiences that I have. So I no longer own, I am angry. Rather, I feel anger because mm-hmm. I am not that. Mm-hmm. I am so much greater than that anger. I am, right. so, you know, so, so it was a peeling away of layers to help me truly own who I am beyond the dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what I learned was that this was really about conditioning that it's not, um, the stuff is considered a character flaw, but in reality, what it is, is layers and levels of generational conditioning that goes back almost 600 years. Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you brought up you when you were, your, your experience when you were 13, uh, when Martin Luther King died, reading your latest book, you talk about how you locked yourself in the bathroom and you heard this voice and the voice said very clearly, you are to continue this work. And you're like, Oh God, what? You know? And, Mm -hmm. um, and it's like that voice, that inner voice or that God voice or that higher self or whatever we want to call it is that voice that we can't we can't, we can't squash it. We can't like sit on it and make it go away. It's just, that's the truth. That's the calling. And that's bigger than even the joy of painting perhaps, or. It keeps calling us back. Yeah. Until we finally say yes. Yes. It just won't go away. It's like, leave me alone. I'm not doing that, you know, but. Does that voice now, does it, is it clear? Does it guide you? Is it? Yeah, my intuition, I'm completely intuitively guided. Like all of my work, like even all my research from my book, mm-hmm. um, I just started the sequel to this particular book and I already designed the cover. I have the, the outline. I mean, this book literally just came out this week and mm-hmm. the other book has already, I've already started working on the other book, just taking people deeper into those 13 layers of healing and and what that means and where it lives in your body and how you can figure out what 
you know, by, by what's happening in your life and in your body, you can figure out what probably happened to your ancestors. Mm. So I want people to be able to come full circle and connect the whole thing. And so I've already started working on that book. So, you know, so it's, so I get these downloads, right. Of information. It's like, Oh, okay. Got it. Like, you know, and, and yeah. my first book I wrote in one day. What? Yeah. Cause I, I woke up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I'd had a conversation with a friend a, a few days earlier and I don't know what I said, but he was like, did you write that down? And I was like, no, I'm just kind of, you know, he, you need to write that down. I don't even remember what it was. All I know is three days later, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, one of those quick sit up in bed kind of things like, oh my God, I got to write that down. <laughs> and I started writing and it was 12 in the afternoon and I was still writing. Mm. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and I, I finished that book that afternoon. I just I would almost call that like a free writing experience, like a channeling mm-hmm. where you just, you free write. Yeah. And it's coming from a, a different place, which is definitely not just your smarts or your intelligence or your book smarts. It's Absolutely. From something much beyond that. Well, I'd love to talk a bit about what you do, which, and one, one subject of what you do, which is covering this, area in this very broad area of racial illiteracy because there's a lot you talk about in your book and in your TED talk and other talks that's quite just mind-blowing and I wouldn't say um, I'm race illiterate well actually I probably would say I'm race illiterate to a degree of my my conditioning right because I'm still learning like oh my god I can't believe they did that or you know it's not long ago that I even really learned the details of the Tuskegee experiment. The Tuskegee experiment, yeah. Tuskegee, thank you, mm-hmm. see? Um, the Tuskegee experiment. And if people aren't familiar with that, I encourage you to look that up. It was a horrific experiment they did on um, the, uh, the- African-American the, men. African-American men, thank you, around syphilis. And they thought they were getting something good for them and they're getting injected with poison and hundreds, if not- I think like a hundred men died, uh, if not more, and uh, definitely suffered. Uh, if they didn't die, many of them got gravely ill. Um, but I want to talk a bit about and go back in time when you were seven and you were in school and you were learning about slavery in the Dominican Republic. And I thought it was so fascinating when you share that you were absorbing this tyranny and internalizing this information from a place as a woman of color from oppression and and while your classmates which were all white classmates were internalizing it from a place of supremacy and superiority and my question is how this creates racial illiteracy because it does blind us right to forms of oppression and if you could just go deeper into that so that our listeners can really understand that how that how that blinds us from not really seeing what's been going on right in front of our face. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, children learn from what they're experiencing in their lives. We're like little sponges, right? We just absorb everything. And when we teach 
history, when we teach one-sided history, what happens is that everyone in that room is absorbing the same history, but everybody is absorbing it from a different place. Right. And so what I was really aware of as, as this little child the things that they were saying were like, you know, these these Africans were savages and we needed to tame them. And and that's why we we you know, they wouldn't use the word kidnap. Right. But we we took them from where they were, you know, like all of those things that that um, that I was learning in school. There was this incredible sense of shame and sadness and and disconnection, not only from what I was learning, but also from the classmates. Mm who were, you know, from the way that they told the story, were absorbing that they were better than me, that they were superior to me, that they were. And it wasn't an explicit thing, right? It wasn't like they were saying, well, you're better than this one or this one's worse. They they, they didn't need to do that. Children are very bright. Yeah. They know, you know, they know their opposites, right? So yeah. if it isn't this, it must be that. Right. And so I was absorbing what they were teaching from this, this sense of there's something wrong with me mm-hmm. and there's something wrong with the people who birthed me and those that came before them and before them and before them, that they had to be taken from where they were, brought somewhere else to be, quote unquote, civilized, because that's basically what they were teaching. Right. At the same time, those other children who were considered white and considered themselves white, and a lot of them were um, were Spaniards and were descendants of Spaniards because I was in a private school and, and, you know, it it was expensive and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, so I was in there with those children, excuse me, and, and those children were learning the same history, but they were learning that history from the perspective of being the conquerors. And the ones who did all of these wonderful things and did all these great things to these people by bringing them out of their land into somewhere where they could be civilized. And even at this point, they still were not civilized. And so this is so again, because of the way that the history was being taught and the and the, the history that was being taught. Children were just absorbing what was in their environment and what they were being told. Right. You know, I always tell people, you know, racism is one of those things that tells a lot about us as human beings. And one of the things that it tells about us that we're really good learners. We were just badly taught. Right. You know, we absorbed it really well. Yeah. It was not the right information, right? Not truth. Well, it makes me think about just so many of the history books and the science books, mind you, whole other conversation, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. And I just think about, okay, Thanksgiving, we all tend to celebrate Thanksgiving and we say, oh, it's a time to come together, but like, hold on a minute, let's really break down Thanksgiving. Yeah. And And what are in these textbooks, or at least the textbooks that I read growing up in the children's stories, and they were all a lie. (laughs) Because in truth, the the Wampanoag Indians, um, they had a very complex relationship with the English and led to one of the most 
horrific wars. I think it was like the King Philip's War, if I'm my history's correct. Um, it won the worst colonial Indian wars in history. And there was slavery going on and they were trying to take their land. And, and um, it, it was incredibly complex. And, um, and it wasn't all about come sit at my table and let's eat bread together. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, these, these, I feel we need to rewrite the history books entirely. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Children need to learn their history because what it does is it grounds them in the reality of who they are. Yeah. It lets them know that they are enough just as they are. Yeah. No. And, um, you know, when we don't teach people history, what we're saying is you don't deserve to know who you are because we are who our ancestors were. And we can decide to to create a different future. But if we don't understand what came before us, that the reason we are where we are today is because of what came before us, it makes it very difficult for us to be creative about our future. All we do is we keep repeating the history and we don't even realize that that's what we're doing. We right. that we're creating something new because we never heard that before. You know, I liken it to, um, you know, when my children were younger, they'd come to me with some song. I was like, oh, this is a great song. And, you know, they'd be singing and I'd start singing and I knew all the words. And they're like, I don't know this song. This is brand new. I said, no, sweetie, no, uh-uh. this is from my time. <laughs> and so I know all the words I can sing and dance to it. OK. And, and the reason I could do that is because I knew the history. Mm -hmm. Right. But without access to the history, they think that they're creating something new. Right. In reality, all they're doing is repeating the past. Right. We keep doing that as a human family. We keep repeating the past because no one's letting us know what our past has actually been so that we don't repeat it. That's right. We don't learn from the lessons. And to your point, I'm thinking of uh, someone that has been on my podcast in the past, Jason Kristoff, and he talks a lot about repetitive content. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, there's a lot of misinformation out there and I'm not going to go one side or the other, but there's a lot of misinformation out there and you can't good. You can't watch the news and say that it doesn't inspire some level of fear. Some people go, Oh, I can watch the news and just be informed. But a lot of it is, is to create this feeling. It's, it's theater. It's, it's, it's theater. And, and if you keep seeing the same story over and over and over again, which is repetitive content, the brain is designed to just take that in and make it truth. Mm -hmm. So if I keep telling you over and over again that Thanksgiving was this beautiful sitting down of the English, the pilgrims and the Indians, and they all came together and they had a beautiful harvest and you hear it over and over again in all the animated stories and the textbooks and the plays, it becomes your truth. Mm -hmm. And then we, we never really get a chance to like crack the code, as you say. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a shame. Well, yeah. I wanted to ask you really, and it's a bit of a broad question, but what are some of the most important myths or lies or misconceptions we have about our history of race and racism? Oh, yeah. <laughs> heavy hitter. I know. Got some time? <laughs> I know. I know it's heavy, but whatever yeah. what comes to mind first, really. Yeah. So um, a lot of what we learned is based on hmm, 
Let me let me give you one of the definitions of supremacy that I use in my book is um, supremacy is innocence, um, immunity, freedom, and a lot of people don't realize that when we say supremacy, that's what it actually is. Supremacy comes from the word superior or to be superior over or greater than. That's really what the word is, okay? And so it's um, it's the writing of that history from that perspective, from the perspective of I'm right and the rest of the world is wrong. Everything I did was beautiful and wonderful. Uh, we are the heroes and heroines of the world. We save everybody. Um, you know, we have this this savior slash hero heroine complex. You know that we have to be the winners. We have to be the heroes of the story, and mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. And so, um, so, so our history that we present to children in school is written from that perspective. It's also written from the perspective of we don't want people to know the truth because it's so ugly right it's very unpleasant and it makes us look bad and so as a result people have been living this myth the thing is that you can't heal on a myth you can't because that's an illusion and so as a result we're not healing racism because we are what we're doing is we are acting out of the the myth and we interact and react out of the myth myths are not real racism is real but the myth of race is not real we know this now through epigenetics we know this from uh, you know like we know this right but we're not really teaching that in school we're not teaching our children that we are one human family, right. that we're all connected through our DNA, that uh, the reason that um, we have people with darker skin is because their tribes developed in places where there was a lot of sunlight and the melanin in their skin helps protect them from the sun. Right. We don't teach our children that all hair is protein. And the only difference between straight hair, wavy hair, curly hair, kinky hair is the follicle, which is the little hole that the hair comes out through. We don't teach our children that, um, you know, that we, that we are on the planet to connect as one human family, one global village. And that what happens to one member of the human family affects everyone. Yes. Because we are all connected through the DNA. And what happens to one DNA over here affects the DNA over there. You know, and so so these are just basic things that we could be teaching in school and we're not. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're spending a lot of time talking about um, you know, things that aren't real. Right. In a lot of ways, a lot of ways. We we teach our children that Columbus came to America. Columbus never made it to the continental USA. He went to the Dominican Republic three times. He went to Cuba. He went to Puerto Rico. He never made it over here. Why are we teaching children that Columbus came to America? Like, what is that? What is that? And I, by the way, when you did your TED talk, I didn't know that. I thought Columbus came to America. I knew there were a lot of stories that explained otherwise. But when you talked about it, it was like, oh, you laid it out quite simply and it made perfect sense. And I had never heard that before. And 
I'm a 49 year old woman. <laughs> Tell me about it. It's, it's just, it's insane. And, and so as a result, we can't heal because yeah. I always tell people, you know, when you go to the doctor because you need healing, one of the first things they ask you for is your medical history. And, and that history is the history of your ancestors who died of a heart attack, who had cancer, who had this, who had diabetes, who, you know what I mean? Like you, they need that history. The reason they need that history, because that history helps them to tell them what you're probably sick with today. Right. And if they're going to help you have a different tomorrow, which is to feel better, right? They need to understand what happened yesterday. They also need to understand what happened yesterday so they don't give you the wrong medication. Right. Because if you have a history of, of heart condition in your lineage and you go in because something hurts or something's broken or whatever it is, right? And they give you medication to help that pain, but it's actually medication that has a really bad side effect for the heart you're going to be in trouble. Okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's why the history is so important because once we understand the history, then we can begin to create a different tomorrow. But without that background, it's very difficult to do that. And rather than teaching our children history, we keep feeding them myth. And, and we also act as if, as if people didn't have the strength and the power to hold the truth about their history. You know, the old, they can't handle the truth. Yeah. We treat history like that. Right. They can't handle the truth. So let's just not tell them. Let's make up a story that makes us sound good and, and it's a little better. And, and the thing is that that doesn't help us heal. No. That maintains the dysfunction in place. Right. So if we're going to heal, we need to become race literate. And, and the reason I keep stressing healing is because healing is what's needed now. You know, we, we have a lot of cognitive information. If transforming racism could happen in our heads, we would have done it a long time ago. That's right. I'm so glad you mentioned that because you really talk about that a lot in your work and that change, in order to change, it's not going to happen through a change of mind. It's going to happen through a transformation or a change of heart. Exactly. And the heart is the greatest engine of transformation. And you and I have something very in common because we're both passionate about transformation. And that's yes. really what is our through line. So without the heart, um, transformation, you know, I want to say good luck to you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I, I just posted a study today on my Instagram from uh, German researchers at uh, the University of Kassel, I believe it's called. And it's kind of been circulating around as of late, but it's a fascinating discovery. And as you and I both work in sound, we understand resonant frequency and, and biophotons and we are light. We are light. Yep. And when we have trauma, we experience trauma, we literally give up light. We have less light. It's like we die a little bit. Right. And so they discovered that um, the heart and the average human being is emitting 20 biophotons per second. Mm. But when we are resonating, when we are standing, rooted, sitting, being in our loving, in all the soul attributes of loving, caring, sharing, connection, right? Joy, communion, 
heartfelt listening, all the good stuff that is so innately who we all are. The heart, wait for it, the heart, its biophotons that it's producing is 100,000 per second. So it jumped from 20 to 100,000 biophotons per second. It's wow. like, just take a second to pause. Like, I just want to push pause on this podcast for a second and just, we're going to come back in a minute. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like, do you yeah. get that? that do you is. get how powerful you are and how powerful we could be if we just drop the shit? Sorry, mm-hmm. that's the first bad words I've used in 30 podcasts. But <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, right? Like we just drop the garbage and mm-hmm. we get real with who we are and whose we are and that we all do bleed the same. And that's it. And if you think anything differently, well... You know, I got to get a pan out and lovingly just whop you on the head. So you just get your head on straight. <laughs> that's like, one way of getting it done. That's one way. I love your quote. You have this beautiful quote that needs to just get etched in stone. And you say, when we each take our brick out of the wall of separation, the wall will crumble and it will create a more equitable path. Yeah, using the bricks to create a more equitable. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, well, what is healing but removing the blocks or the bricks? Yeah. That is the darkness, that is the illusion, that is the delusion, that is the ignorance, that is the illiteracy, that is the not knowing, that is all that stuff that keeps the light out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What is it? The Course in Miracles says, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect that if you, uh, there's no need for us to, to search for love. But what there is a need for is for us to remove everything that keeps us from accessing it. Yes, yes. That <laughs> you know, blocks us from the loving. Exactly. And that's what this work is. This work is about peeling away the layers of dysfunction, peeling away the layers of conditioning that keep us from seeing not just our own humanity, but the humanity of others. And it keeps us from that sacred connection that is who we are as one human family. And, and when I say what, well, I'm not kidding about that. This isn't some, some platitude. We are, we're all 35th cousins, 50th cousins. We are all related on this planet. And so having a conscious awareness of these are the cousins. These are the cousins. Mm-hmm. And what do you really want not just for you and your family and your children, but what do you want for the cousins? Because whatever we don't allow them to have because we either take it away from them or we block them from having it, at some point will come back to us. Right. And it, it you know, it, it's, it's so interesting to me because over the years, um, you know, one of the things that I remind people of is um, race riots in this country pl- prior to the civil rights movement, where white communities going in and destroying black communities. That's what a race riot actually was be prior to the civil rights movement. And what would happen is that people would just quietly 
go about their lives after they destroyed these communities and it would leave these black communities. And this happened all over um, the country, right? They would leave these black communities to build on their own and they would claim that they would give city assistance, but they never, never did. And ultimately, a lot of the times that we just build like a railroad or a big highway to divide up the community. And this would happen over and over and over again. It was interesting to me as I watched the insurrection in January 6th, because what I what what really hit me was, first of all, that, you know, there, there were no laws that would go after these people who would murder you know, black and brown people in and and destroy their homes and loot their property and all. There were no laws against that. So as I watched that insurrection, I was like, oh my God, it's finally come home. Hmm. It's finally come home. And so I think it's so important for us to realize that truly, truly what goes around comes around. And and Dr. King used to say, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If we allow injustices to happen to quote unquote other people, eventually they will come around to us. You know, what, what is it, that, that uh, piece that was written um, during the Holocaust? Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the man, but, but it basically says um, they came for the unionists and I said nothing. Mm-hmm. They came for, you know, he goes, goes and he talks about all the people they came for. He said, and then they came for me and there was no one to speak for me. That if we keep allowing injustices to happen, eventually they will come home to bite us. Mm-hmm. So that's why healing is so important, because when we start to see the, the, the connection that we have to our human family, we start wanting the best for everyone. Yes. Yeah. We look for ways to make that happen. Because yeah. that's our focus, right? To see to it that there's just there's compassion that all children have can get a good education and all children have something to eat and all children, you know what I mean? Like all children have a home. Like we start to look for that because that then becomes the focus of seeing to it that everyone in the village, everyone in the family is taken care of and feels loved. Mm-hmm. That's how we create a safer world. It isn't by fighting other people. That's right. It's by bringing peace. Yeah. And creating separation, which they're doing right now. All the vaccinated will get this. All the unvaccinated will get this. Yeah. But what about freedom of choice? People say they have freedom of choice, but you know, where does, where does freedom of choice stop? And not to get political, but, oh, freedom of choice stops at, oh, abortions? Okay, but what about people that have uh, autoimmune disease? What about people that have uh, advanced cancers and the doctor said you shouldn't take it? What about the people of color that have been experimented on for hundreds of years and are naturally questioning something that's just been rushed through studies and all the animals have died in the experiments? And- Okay, now now we are being mandated. What what? And we are silent. And as you say, silence is the killer. Yes. And so I just encourage everyone listening to just have you consider consider: Is this okay for you? Is this okay for you to be silent? Is it okay? What? Where does freedom of choice stop? Right. 
And I'm just using that because that's the biggest yeah. heavy hitter right now. And of course, racism is huge. Yeah. But just as a, as a topic of consideration, because it does involve, you know, um, racism. I'm thinking of this, um, a client of mine I had earlier, he was sharing, he works with children all over the city. And he was sharing how um, downtown, and I live in Los Angeles, and downtown Los Angeles in Watts, um, and of course, the funding is a lot less in the public schools in these communities than in the Bel Airs of the world, and uh, that's to no surprise. And this one girl um, tested positive. They found that she had COVID. And the uh, officials, the health officials said, oh, don't worry about it, just uh, send her back to school. Now that would never happen in the other communities. And if we're really about health, if it's really about health, why is that okay over there? But my son has to be tested in a lineup once a week at his school, mandated, but, oh, some someone gets is tested and doesn't feel well and just put her back in this just put her back in school mm -hmm. and we it's like it, they don't matter so how is that okay and i thought it was really fascinating milagros when you talk about the disparity in healthcare around um, race and how that study i believe you talk about that they did on how um, people in the healthcare healthcare providers they found they 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 what they share with people of color is much different than what and the information they provide them, whether it be informed consent or otherwise, is a gross difference from what they will share or even do as a medical procedure on another. Yeah, and it yeah. Uh, and this has been happening forever. Yeah, forever, forever. Yeah. 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 It's this stuff is huge. This stuff is huge and it is so multi-layered and when I was having you when I was getting ready to have you on the show I I said to my husband you're so brilliant and you're so your work is so needed but at the same time as the host of this podcast I was kind of spinning my wheels cuz I was like there's so much to talk about <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I don't mm -hmm. even know what to ask. And there's so many levels to it. And there's so much just human to human that I just want to talk about compassion the com and the opportunity, as you say, for healing and applicable, like real deal compassion. You know, you say that the traumatized, traumatized people traumatize other, others, traumatized right. people traumatize others. And there's so much weight to that statement because it makes me think of a, a brilliant um, doctor, scientist, spiritual teacher, Joan Borinsenko. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot about the phenomenon of epigenetics and epigenetics. Anyone listening that doesn't know epi means to go above and beyond and genetics being the gene. So you're going above and beyond the gene and how um, those that have dealt with traumas, whether it be slavery, or as you mentioned in your Ted talk, the Nina laws, I'm half Irish. My ancestors 
got off that boat in New York, into New York City from Ireland. And they were, they couldn't find a job because there were these signs that said no Irish need apply. And they're going, huh, what? I thought I'm coming here for freedom because the British just came into my backyard and said that I need to, you know, pull the weeds, but I'm a professor and a doctor and a lawyer and they just, they're living in my mansion. (laughs) So, and so I just think of the, the, the opportunity for healing around that, how the traumatized people traumatize others. It's like, okay, let's break that down. So the people that have poor impulse control, the people that murder and the people that get angry, and we all have the potential to do that. Um, but those that are carrying that epigenetically, they have found that there is indeed a connection in the genes where the genes actually fold. They're different because of the trauma. And so the opportunity in healthcare, the opportunity in the world is to create programs and find ways to heal those that have been traumatized, to do uh, important um, to, to do programs, to, to apply um, things within the medical system, within the insurance system, where people get that opportunity to heal this epigenetic phenomenon that we know affects their behavior because every hormone that we put out, it, it creates a belief. It creates yep. this, you know, this chemistry in our blood. Yep. Yep. The body creates a a chemistry for everything, every every thought, even you're reading a book, you're creating a chemistry for that, for for your your eyes to move back and forth. And, you know, like we we're constantly creating different chemistries in our bodies and, um, you know, traumatized people struggle with with emotional things that seem, you know, just like what's the big deal to someone else? But to them, it is a big deal because they're carrying trauma. The thing about a lot of the traumas that human beings carry, it's that it's uh, decontextualized. So they have no context for it. They, you know, they just know, um, you know, I'm, I'm scared of snakes or something like that, or I'm scared. This frightens me. I'm scared of heights or whatever. And that it may or may not be necessarily something that happened to you as a child or with it, you know, that it could very well be you're carrying stuff from your ancestry and understanding. Like, I, I really believe that all professionals who work with other people need to be trauma informed. I really believe that, you know, teachers need to be trauma informed. Um, healthcare providers need to be trauma informed and, and not just, you know, like, even if you don't take a full blown course, but understand that traumatized people traumatize others. that, there is primary trauma, which is it happened to you. Secondary trauma, you watch, heard, or saw something happen to someone else. And that people carry that stuff in their bodies. Yes. And that it affects them. And, you know, there, there's a wonderful um, uh, quote from Resma Menekin, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. And, and in it, he says, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm. So if if you're overreacting around something, some person, some place, something, you have some kind of history. Something happened to either you or your people or somebody who came before you and you're carrying that trauma and you may not have context for that trauma. 
And so, you know, I, I, I just, in fact, it was funny because I was talking to a friend of mine today um, who's, who's visiting from Massachusetts. And I said, um, I was telling her about this next book that I'm writing and um, in looking at ways of how do we, how can we start to break down what happened to our ancestors by looking at our own dysfunctional self, right? Like looking at where are the, 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 the tweaks, like where are the things that we overreact about that we, you know, like if we can get a sense of some of that, we can begin to break down and to really unpack what may have happened to our ancestors. Ultimately, the goal is to release it and let it go. Yeah. To allow ourselves to be free, you know, by peeling away some of those layers of things that we may not necessarily be conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. As a biofield tuner, I just think, gosh, my head's just kind of running with ideas of getting a bunch of biofield tuners, practitioners together and going into these communities and biofielding people because all the trauma is held in the field, in yeah. the unified field, right? Yeah. And it could, we could find that the majority of trauma may be in the gestational period in birth because they are as souls uh, conscious beings as soul beings, conscious beings growing inside their mother's womb, they are absorbing her state of fight or flight or fear or trauma or Absolutely. whatever she's dealing with. And that will inform as it does um, their life. And they'll wake up, you know, they'll come into this, onto this planet and they'll, as a baby and they'll go, why have I been scared and in fear since birth? Well, because you absorbed it from your mother and your mother yeah. probably absorbed it from her mother. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. can just start to detune that. Um, yeah. And, just uh, yeah, something that's to consider. A, that's a great idea. I love that. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. for me, I, um, so I was a stillbirth and how I got my wow. name, my name means miracle. And how I got my name was because my mother, um, who was, you know, past the childbearing age, as they would say back then. And um, she was, you know, her, her last child, was now 14 years old. She hadn't had children in 14 years. And she just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And she thought she had a tumor. And she was afraid to go to the doctor because she was afraid of what they were going to tell her, right? So one day my father was just like, he'd had it, you know? And he's like, you are going to the doctor today. And so he takes her to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you don't have a tumor. You're pregnant. <laughs> And he said, then my mother told me the next thing he said was, but you have to have an abortion because you're too old to be having children. How old my she? mother said she was, she was 47. My mother said, oh, I, I don't know how to do a tumor, but I, I know how to have babies because that was oh. her ninth child. Okay. Oh, my God. oh, yeah. And so, um, but, but here's the thing. So I was a stillbirth. And, and I often have thought about that from the perspective of my mother's fear of, because, you know, so, so first she had a fear that she had a tumor. Then yeah. she had a fear that either she or her baby would, or both would die in childbirth. Mm. And so, so, so there was that, right. There was this, that thread running. And 
I, you know, I joke that, you know, I came on the planet and I was like, ooh, I've been here before. I'm going back home. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. And they were like, you know, I, I was telling this friend of mine, it's like uh, there's a scene in uh, A Christmas Story when the little boy tries to climb back up to, to tell Santa what he wants. And Santa says, you shoot your eye out, kid, and kicks him with his shoe back down. So the kid has to, it was just like, that's me. I try to go back and they're like, uh, no, ho, ho, ho. Like, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> so, you know, but my mother prayed that if I was allowed to live, so I was literally given away as a sacrifice, right? Uh, at birth, she was, if uh, I were allowed to live, she would name me Miracle of the Highest Grace. And so that's how I got my name. Oh, that is extraordinary. Yeah. And so it's like, so I, I understand that whole thing about carrying the mother's fear Mm -hmm. and then awakening and, and, and realizing like I was 24 and I had taken my baby to visit my mom and, you know, she's climbing on the coffee table. She's climbing here. She's climbing there. And I'm just following her, you know, letting her do her thing. And I remember my mother coming out of the kitchen as my daughter's climbing on the coffee table. She goes, you're going to fall. And it was like, I I got hit by a ton of bricks. Mm. I was like, oh my God. Because at that point I had not learned to roller skate. I couldn't ride a bike. I didn't do any of the kids that kids normal. And I suddenly realized why. My mother had a fear that I would fall and I would die. Yes. She'd seen other children and and she had a child who had a bad fall and died. And so my mother had this fear. And all of a sudden I was just like, but what was so powerful for me in that moment when I went into reflection about, oh my gosh, I'm just carrying my mother's fear. And I was just 24. I realized that not only was I carrying my mother's fear, but that fear was affecting, I had a fear of success, a fear of failure, a fear of not getting it right. Like all these fears that came from that. And it was decontextualized trauma that I was carrying, which was my mother's trauma. Yes. And so even at an early age, I was just like able to put two and two together. And so within a year, I learned how to roller skate. I learned how to buy, ride a bike. Like I'm in my 20s learning to do these things. Because I suddenly realized, oh, I don't do these things because my mother had a fear that I might fall and die. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge and it's real. It's, it's real. real. It's real. And thank God that you had that hit where you recognize that you do not have to carry it. It's not yours to carry. It exactly. does not belong to you. Exactly. It's not yours. Exactly. And, and the part of it that was mine. I could choose to release. Yeah, very powerful. That's beautiful. I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. And you mentioned in your book that you were homeless for a couple of times Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't trade that for the world. And we hear that a lot. Some of the most intense experiences that people have, whether it be cancers or even being homeless or anything in between, that they wouldn't trade it for the world because it informed them and it informed their work. And it was a vehicle by which you got to sort of do your preparatory work for what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. So with all that, how did, how did being homeless inform your work in your life? 
Yeah. So I was one of the fortunate ones in that I was homeless, but I was never without shelter. Okay. I always had a place like, you know, stay with a friend or, you know, things like that. But what I learned um, through that process was how vulnerable people of color are around housing, how vulnerable we are around even getting work, getting people to hire you. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an educated woman, I have a degree and, and you know, and you still can't get work. I have a friend who is um, uh, a medical doctor and she struggles to get work. You know, and so so all of these things that that happened to us and how we're saddled with these debts that are, you know, like most of my female friends are in their 60s and 70s and they're still paying off student loans. Mm. You know, like it's it's just it's it's huge. And so what I learned, there, there were several things. And one of them is that when we go through these things and. We, we come to a place of wholeness again and, and where we're, you know, by wholeness again, I mean conscious wholeness. We're always whole. Yes. You know, but but being conscious that that we are whole and, and we deserve to have a place to live, that we deserve to be able to, to self-care and all of those kinds of things. You carry the essence of the experience healed. So different from reading about it, talking about it, dreaming about it. Like you carry the experience healed. You yeah. carry the experience and the healing around it. Mm-hmm. And so, so having, um, having had those experiences, um, I, I, I learned a lot. I also learned to ask for help because I was one that like, I just never asked for help. Like I, I can figure this out. Right. So, so I learned a lot of humility. Um, I learned things that I never would have learned before. I also learned how much I was loved, mm. cared for, and how people would always say, oh, my God, you can come and stay with me. You know, and so that was my experience with that. Um, it, it, and, and it was humbling, humbling around accepting help. It was humbling around um being learning to be self-compassionate and self-loving and also realizing that we live in a world where the odds are not fixed in the favor of people of color and that it's not just financial insecurity but how financial insecurity and the inability to get a job affects your it, it leads to food insecurity um, you know, um, housing insecurity and all of those things. So these are basics. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The yes. first rung is clothing, food, and shelter. That's your survival, your security, and how these things are set up so that our security is always threatened somehow. Mm-hmm. And then people blame you for because what we do is then we blame the victim. What's wrong with you? How come you can't get it together? Right. You know, when we we don't look at how the system is set up so that it's very difficult for you to get it together. And when we look at people and we use examples of, oh, but this one's been successful and that one's been successful. And and we forget that the fact that you can name those people. Is a sign. Mm. 
right. Like, like the five in one hand kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like if you can name them, that's a sign. You know, that it's like, oh, but this one, it's like, well, can you name all the other people who haven't been? That's right. What do you think is the one thing more than anything that we need to do to change, change how we are living out humanity, this this disease, this epidemic, this illusion of separation. And I should say, I should say, not for everyone, but it's still the majority. It's a pervasive thing. It's an energy that's present and things need to dissolve and dissolve quick so that we can not just heal humanity, but heal the planet. And if we heal the planet, we're going to heal humanity. So we can't compartmentalize it. Mm -hmm. So big question, but what is the one thing that you feel people really need to get on board with, to get in their consciousness, to get in their hearts, to make change a reality. Yeah. So, um, one of the biggest gifts for me, um, in making change in my life has been understanding my history. And when I say my history, I'm, I'm not just talking about, um, you know, the general global human family history. I'm talking about my history and, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, and, I, and I tell this story in one of my books, but I, I, I had just come home. I was going to Catholic school um, and I just come home and we had a white uniform and I threw my stuff down in the house and I ran in the backyard and there was a woman in our backyard with a big tub full of bubbles. And I said, what are you doing? So I'm like, I'm seven years old. I mean, come on, you see bubbles, you go nuts. Right. And so I still do. <laughs> I love bubbles. <laughs> and so um so I was like, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm, I'm washing your clothes. And she and I said, can I help? I'm so excited, you know. And and she said, no, 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 I don't don't put your hands in. I'm, you know, like slushing around to make more bubbles. Right. And my mother came out of the kitchen and my mother was incensed. She was so angry with this woman and, you know, told her I'm not paying you to teach my daughter to wash clothes. And she just went on and she did this whole thing. Right. I was so embarrassed and I felt horrible for this lady. And I was so angry with my mother because I had never seen her treat anybody like that. Number one, number two, um, she just spoiled my fun because now I couldn't play with the bubbles. Right. And so I was just like furious with her. Fast forward. I'm a grown woman. I'm living in the Pacific Northwest because my ex-husband was in the military. And I went back to New York to visit my family and my sister and I, my sister was 30 years older than myself. And she and I, she was more like my mother and we were very close. And, my, and so my sister and I are having this conversation and she starts to tell me about my grandmother. And I, my grandmother died when I was six. And all I knew about my grandmother was that whenever my mother came after me, I'd go hide behind my, my grandmother. You know, <laughs> like that was, she was my savior. And, um, and she didn't speak Spanish. She only spoke English. 
and I only knew a few words in English. I only spoke Spanish. So my uh, my sister's telling me the story about something that happened to um, my grandmother. She was raped. And she she was a, worked as a domestic, and she was raped, and she had a child. Wow. And um, so fast forward, I you know when my sister's telling me that story, and my heart and my mind went immediately to the little seven-year-old whose mother got so angry with the woman who was teaching her, who in my mother's mind was teaching her how to wash clothes. Mm. Because in my mother's mind, she was teaching me to be a domestic. And in her mind, no, no daughter of hers was ever gonna work as a domestic. Not because she didn't honor and respect the work, but because she was afraid that one of her daughters could be raped. That's if I had, you know, as a seven year old, I'm not going to have that piece of history because nobody's going to tell me that. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I got that piece of history, all of a sudden, my mother didn't seem so crazy anymore. Yeah. Because in that moment, when I was seven, I was like, this woman must have just like lost it all of a sudden. Right. But, but getting that piece of history put all the stuff into perspective. When my mother passed away, I found um, a certificate that um, she had received in the Dominican Republic. I have five brothers. And my mother had gotten a certificate for educating all of her sons. Oh. And because back then in the DR, like very few pe people finished high school and, and you let alone go to trade schools and, you know, do all the things that my brothers did. And, you know, and I realized you know, like all of these pieces of the puzzle came together because I got that little bit of history. Mm. Without it, a lot of my mother's behavior made no sense to me. When I got that, I realized, oh my God, my mother was trying to keep her daughter safe. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the times when I realized the importance of history. And that is why, I tell people, if you truly want to heal from racism, you need to become race literate. Mm. And, and, and that means learning more than what you learned in school. Being conscious that one of the reasons we don't know the history is because the history is pretty horrific. Knowing that you're brave enough and strong enough and powerful enough to take it, to be able to understand it. And to be able to be compassionate with yourself and others as you understand that history. But without it, it's very difficult to heal. Mm. Because without it, all we see is the craziness and it makes no sense. Yeah. And as you say, all that will bring us to understanding. And understanding is really a universal spiritual law. It's the third spiritual law. We have acceptance this is happening, right? Acceptance. Mm -hmm. And then we have it. Once we have acceptance, we have compassion. We can move into more easily move into compassion. And then when we have compassion, we can really see through the eyes of promotic clear sight and understand what truth is from fiction. So and as you say, too, knowledge plus wisdom will lead to inspired action. 
So the knowledge that's birthed from this deeper heart-centered understanding will naturally, organically birth our inherent wisdom and thus hopefully thrust us forward into a global inspired action. And I hope, it's my prayer that we're all moving in that direction. Well, Milagros Phillips, thank you so much for being on the podcast and let's be in touch. Let's be in touch. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.